uh, it, back in July of, of 2009, a woman named Shara, uh, Sarah Shroud, not Shara Shroud, she also, she sold seashells by the seashore and she, she would not take the garbage out for those of you who are Shell Silverstein fans. Let me, let's just start this entire thing over. Uh, in 2009, a woman named Sarah Shroud was living in Damascus, Syria. She's American. She was working as a journalist. And she took a weekend trip with two friends. Uh, apparently, there is a, an American-friendly, a Western-friendly area of Iraqi Kurdistan. Who knew? Uh, and there's some nature area up there, and they were, they were, gonna, they were taking some big hikes together. Well, unfortunately for Sarah and her two friends, they got lost. And they took a couple wrong turns and stayed lost, and they crossed the border into Iran. And as it turns out, there are, very, there are many fewer American-friendly areas of Iran. They were arrested by Iranian authorities. Finding out they were American, they, of course, charged them as being spies, and they were taken to imprisonment in Tehran. There, the three of them were put in solitary confinement, and they, spent, they each spent about 10,000 hours in solitary confinement. That is over a year in solitary confinement in Iran. As a writer, she later wrote about her mental breakdown in that isolation. She hallucinated, and she described those hallucinations as best she could in her 2011 book. And she wrote, at one point, I heard someone screaming, and those screams drove me even more mad. She writes, it wasn't until I felt the hands of one of the friendlier guards on my face trying to revive me that I realized the screams I was hearing were my own. She was so delirious, so out of her mind, she could not tell her own screams from someone else's or from her own imagination. We, we all have a desire to be alone sometimes. To get away, but there's a loan, and then there's a loan. Folks who study such things will tell us there's a level of isolation that gets really bad for people really quickly. We're not built for isolation, loneliness. Well, over the centuries of church history, there have been times seasons and places where the Christian faith is what has caused isolation. Just like with, with Sarah Shroud, being an American, just being an American caused, and taking a wrong turn, caused her isolation. There have been times in church history where being a Christian put people in situations like that. The church, Christian history, was built on the backs of outcasts, martyrs. We've talked a lot lately that obedience 
can be scary, but obedience can also at times be lonely. We're a month into a study of the life of the prophet Elijah in the book of 1 Kings. And where we've been so far, just to get you caught up, we met Elijah one chapter ago, 1 Kings chapter 17. He just appears kind of out of nowhere, and he announces to the king of Israel, a man named Ahab, it is not going to rain in Israel again until I give the word. And God, we've since learned, has set up something of a contest between himself, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and this false god of the king of, of Israel at that time, Ahab, and his wife Jezebel. Their god was a god named Baal. And according to their way of thinking, Baal was the, was the god who was in control of rain. And so to prove that there's only one god, God through Elijah announced, it's not going to rain until God says so. And, and, and Elijah said, I am God's mouthpiece, his spokesman. So until I announce it's going to rain, no rain. Since then, we've been walking through a drought that's turned into a famine. Right after that announcement, Elijah had to face his first bout with isolation. God sent him out into the wilderness with no supplies. The only ones to keep him company were the crows that miraculously delivered him food. After his water source dried up, God ordered him to go north into hostile territory out of Israel into the land of Queen Jezebel, her homeland, and live with a penniless, destitute widow. And that's where Elijah has been. God has been miraculously providing for the widow, her son, and Elijah. Well, today, God is going to tell Elijah, it's time to go home. Time to go back to Israel. It's time to end this drought. But there are a lot of details to iron out between, before it starts raining in our story. We've got a couple of weeks yet before it does. But today, God's going to order Elijah home. And just on his trip home, he's going to meet an old friend named Obadiah. And from Obadiah and Elijah mainly, we're going to learn about how Obedience can lead to isolation, and, and we're going to use them as an example of, of what it looks like to live, what we would say to live as a Christian in, in, a, in a land that more and more hates the idea of the Bible and Christians. Let's read our passage together. 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to read 18 verses of 1 Kings 18. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year of this drought. And God said to Elijah, go, show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself. Obadiah went another way by himself. Verse 7. 
Now as Obadiah was on the way or on the road, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized Elijah and fell on his face and said, Is this you, Elijah, my master? He said to him, It is I. Go, say to your master Ahab, Behold, Elijah is here. But Obadiah said, What sin have I committed that you are giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? As Yahweh your God lives, there's no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent to search for you. And when they said, Elijah's not here, Ahab made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. And now you are saying, go, say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. It will come about when I leave you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? That I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water? And now you are saying, go to your master. Behold, Elijah is here. He will then kill me. Elijah said, as Yahweh of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet with Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. There's our passage today. We start in verse 1, where God announces to Elijah, he's ready to bring an end to this famine. And so God tells Elijah, get up and go see Ahab. Now, again, here's, here's why that meeting has to take place. God can make it rain whenever God wants to make it rain. But if God just decides to make it rain before Elijah shows up and announces God's about to make it rain... Who will they give the credit to for the rain? They'll say, finally, Baal has won and he has given rain. So Elijah has to go make the announcement that God says droughts over. So Elijah obeys, gets up, and heads for the capital, Samaria. Now, if this were a movie, this is, we'd have a scene change right here, halfway through verse 2. Because the camera goes, leaves Elijah in leaving the widow's house or maybe saying his goodbyes to the widow and her son and, and changes to inside Ahab's palace in Samaria where we meet a man named Obadiah. Now let's just get this out of the way from the beginning. This is not the same Obadiah that wrote the tiny Old Testament book named Obadiah. Just by way of trivia, there are 13 Obadiahs mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, That fact will do nothing for your life at all. That just comes at at no extra charge here. But this Obadiah, our author goes out of his way when he introduces him to make sure we know this guy loved the Lord, was loyal to the God of Israel, the one true God. He tells him, this, this translation says, so uh, Obadiah, uh, oh, his job, he supervised the palace. 
but he was a very loyal follower of the Lord or of Yahweh. Your translation might say something like, he feared the Lord greatly. Our author emphasizes Obadiah's zeal for God right after he introduces him. And he does that so that we don't get the wrong idea about him in the rest of this story. He tells him he really loved the Lord. Then in verse 4, he gives an example to back up that claim. Ahab and Jezebel, king and queen, one of their goals was to turn the nation of Israel away from following the God of Israel and turn the nation to following this fake God, Baal, and the other gods of that pantheon. And Jezebel especially was so fervent in that desire, one policy initiative she had was to murder all of what are called the prophets of Yahweh or the men of God who followed Yahweh. In in our way of thinking, it would be like the government executing all of the pastors that are devoted to teaching the scriptures. We don't know what their careers were like or much anything about it, but we do know these were, were men who had a passion and a desire to see people in Israel following the Lord. And she tried to execute them all. And Obadiah, at great risk to himself, we can tell from his job today, he was almost surely a part of the effort to round these prophets up for execution. Well, he rounded them up all right. And he hid a hundred of them in two different groups. So if one group got discovered and executed, another group would survive, I assume. This was, this was Schindler's List before Schindler's List. This is an incredibly brave thing to do. So our author wants to make sure we know Obadiah loved the Lord. And here's how you can be sure of that. And he tells us that because it's easy to get the wrong idea. And there are there are pastors and interpreters whom I love and respect and who love the Lord and, and all that stuff who teach this passage differently than I will. They paint Obadiah as like he was not a real believer, like he had a fake faith or he was a coward or a sellout. And, and that, just, I, that just can't be true. Our author goes out of his way at the beginning to let us know he's the real deal and he doesn't want us to get the wrong idea. That'll be important later. All right, so after telling us about Obadiah in verses 5 and 6, we're back to the present day in this story in the palace and we are told of Obadiah's new marching orders from King Ahab. He says... The drought's so severe, our horses and our cattle are dying, so go find some pasture that we can keep these animals alive. Now, Hebrew narrative, and by that I mean just a story told in ancient Hebrew, those stories are usually very slim on details. I would expect usually a story like this in the Bible would say something like, and it came to pass when Obadiah was on the way. And then he meets Elijah. But we get this, this specific detail about range judging, right? Going to look for pasture. And so we should ask ourselves, what is this doing here? Here's what that is, that is doing there. 
it sh- it's there to show us what kind of people Ahab and Jezebel were. They're the kind of people who will move heaven and earth to keep their animals alive, but have no problem executing people who teach a religion different than theirs, right? You see the contrast there? See, the animals are valuable to them. They're literally way more valuable than the prophets of God. That's the orders that Obadiah is carrying out when he runs into an old friend on the way. Verse 7 is is Obadiah is going and he's being obedient. He's serving his king. He's looking for pasture. And he sees Obadiah on his way to Samaria. Excuse me, he sees Elijah on Elijah's way toward the capital. When he sees him, he's very happy to see him. He falls on his face. When, When we met Elijah first in, in chapter 17, verse 1, I told you that we, it's the first time he just shows up in the Bible, and we're not told anything about him, but I told you then we'll be able to tell he was already a recognizable religious figure and leader. Here's one way we know this. First, he could just go in and talk to the king, get an audience with the king. But second, when Obadiah, who is like Ahab's chief of staff in that palace, in Samaria, very important job. When Obadiah sees Elijah, he knows exactly who it is and he recognizes his superiority. Um, he bows down. This is not just a prophet of God. Elijah is the prophet of God. So he's really happy to see him until Obadiah hears what Elijah orders him to do. Elijah says, go back to the capital, find your master, that's King Ahab, and just tell him I'm back. Tell him Elijah is back. And Obadiah wants no part of doing this. He's very scared to do this. He thinks he'll be executed if he does that. And this, is the, this can be kind of confusing for us to tell Why is Obadiah so scared? If he's brave enough to hide all those prophets and risk his own life, why won't he go back and and tell Ahab that Elijah's still alive? We have to read between the lines a bit. But when he tells us, Ahab will kill me, I think we should trust him. Because he knows Ahab better than anyone else in this story. If he thinks Ahab will kill him, I think Ahab will probably want to kill him. He says to his old friend Elijah, if I go back there and say, Elijah is alive, I've seen him, but I don't deliver you, that's when he'll kill me. He's saying, And he says some of these details. There's been an international manhunt for you, buddy. And every time someone tells Ahab they don't know where you are, he forces them to take an oath that 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 is true. And that 
anyone who would break that oath, he would kill them. If I show up and say, oh yeah, I met him on the road. And he says, well, where is he? And he says, well, you know, I didn't apprehend him or anything. He's going to kill me. I don't want to run the risk of Ahab knowing you and I are friends. And I think there's, there's even more than that going on here. Because I think Obadiah feels abandoned and abandoned by Elijah. I see this right in here when he says, man, if I go tell him Elijah's back in verse 12, when I leave you, the Lord's Spirit will carry you away so I can't find you, and then Ahab won't be able to find you, and then he'll kill me. You see, if we could hear Obadiah's heart of hearts, if we could hear what he really means and what he wants Elijah to understand, here's what I think we would hear Obadiah saying, God used you, Elijah, to start this whole mess with the famine, but you, where have you been ever since? You got to leave. God swept you away out to the Raven restaurant and to eat the widow's home cooking. You know where I've been over the last three years? Right under the dragon's nose. I've lived, I've been, haven't you heard how I've been hiding the prophets of your Do you know how I've spent the, every day of the last three years? Every time a door opened, you know what I thought? They're coming to get me. This is when they have discovered what I've been doing and who I really am and who my loyalty is to. And you've been safely spirited away to wherever it is you've been. And now you show up back here and ask me to go back one more time to take this massive risk again while you stay safely out of harm's way? I don't think so. You go tell him. We've seen earlier in this book, one of the major themes of the Elijah story so far is that obedience can be scary and feel risky. And obedience can also be incredibly lonely. You can feel abandoned. That's what Obadiah has been dealing with. Now, I want to couch that by saying, it, when I feel abandoned, I better make sure it's actually because I've been so obedient, because there are lots of other reasons why I might feel that way. But that, I think, is Obadiah's heart. But my, my favorite part of this passage is verse 15, where we, we read Elijah respond to Obadiah. He doesn't respond the way I think I would have responded in his shoes. You, you know what he, pay attention to what he doesn't say. Obadiah has just said, I'm not going back there. Where have you been? I've been risking my life all these days, scared to death. I jump every time a floor creaks. Where have you been? Elijah does not say, let me tell you, you're not the only one who's had taken some risks around here. He also doesn't chastise his friends balking at risky disobedience, Right? The prophet of God, the mouthpiece of God has just told him to do something. You know what Obadiah should do? Whatever Elijah tells him to do. 
But when he balks at that, Elijah doesn't say, you call yourself a God-fearing man. You know what I would do if I was in your shoes? No. You know what he does? He sort of puts his arm around his friend and says, listen, I'm going to be here now. If I, when I tell you, when I tell you that I'm going to go up here before Ahab today, I'm, I promise you I'm going to do it today. I'm going to walk through this with you. And with that encouragement, Obadiah suddenly has no problem. Oh, you're going to do this with me? All right, see you in a little while. And he marks, marches straight back into the dragon's lair. And does exactly what he was so scared to do because his friend was going to do it with him. He goes and tells Ahab, Elijah's back and he said he's coming to meet you. Now, Ahab doesn't wait for Elijah to get to him. Ahab takes off and heads to where Elijah is. And Elijah is heading toward Ahab. And it's like the two trains on the same track, steaming toward each other. And when they finally meet, they're... The only part of their conversation we're going to look at this morning is basically differing answers to this question. What is the real problem around here? As you read that, what does does Elijah think the problem in Israel is? What does Ahab think the problem in Israel is? Ahab talks first. Ahab, when he sees Elijah, he says, is that really you, the one who has brought this whole disaster on Israel? And Elijah responds by saying, I know you are, but what am I? He says, I'm rubber and you're glue. And whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. That's more of a paraphrase than a translation, but that's what he says. See, Elijah knows the problem is really that all of Israel is abandoning the worship of Yahweh. And in their day, that was through the law, the commandments. And under Ahab and Jezebel's leadership, they're leaving the Lord and following the Baals, which is just the the God Baal and all of the other gods in that in that pantheon. That's the actual problem. The symptom of that problem is the drought, the natural disaster. What does Ahab think the problem is? The problem is God and God's prophet. You are the one who's brought disaster on Israel. That's our whole story for this morning. And we're going to stop right there so we can learn what I think we're supposed to learn from this passage. Because this would not be the last time that this line of thinking, Ahab's exact line of thinking, takes hold in a country, in an area, in in an organization, anything. The line of thinking goes like this. You know what the problem is around here? God and people who follow him. You know what the problem is around here? Religion. 
That's what's wrong with this place. If we didn't have so much religion, we wouldn't have all the problems that we have. Ever hear any line of of thinking like this? You remember George Carlin? When I was a youngin', George Carlin, the comedian, had a whole comedy special based on this premise. He said that the bloodiest and most brutal wars were caused by religion. You know what the problem is? The idea of God and people who follow him. Leading atheist thinker Richard Dawkins wrote in his awful book, The God Delusion. He said, without religion, there will be no labels by which to decide whom to oppress and whom to avenge. Avenge. You know why people get oppressed? Some people get piled on and beaten up and all that stuff. It's all because of religion. The problem is God and the people who follow him. Another intellectual champion of that ilk guy named Gore Vidal. He wrote this, the great unmentionable evil at the center of our culture is monotheism. From a barbaric Bronze Age text known as the Old Testament, three anti-human religions have evolved. Judaism, Christianity, Islam. These are sky god religions. And then the the rest of that whole work is explaining why the real problem is belief in this so-called sky God. The problem is God and people who follow him. Now there are so many things wrong with that quote. I don't even know where to start. So I'm kind of going to leave that alone. But you've heard this line of thinking, right? The main problem with that line of thinking is reality. Another work I want to reference this morning. It's called the, the, the Encyclopedia of War. This is not a religious text. It's not a Christian text. Uh, it's a three-volume work published in 2004. It cataloged at that point 1,763 wars in history, which just means recorded. There's documentation Obviously, there's been some back in the day that people didn't write about. But there have been, according to this work, 1,763 wars in human history. Only 123 of them have been religious in nature. That's about 7%. There is one religion that caused the majority of those. That's Islam. You can subtract 66. So if you're looking for all religions... Have there been some wars caused by Christians supposedly about Christianity? Yes. You've got to look backwards a long time, but you'll find them. But there have been 57 wars in recorded world history that were religious, but not from Islam. It's about 3%. Now, compare that to the amount of bloodshed and suffering brought on by governments that hate God and hate those who follow him. A different historian, but he picks out a 70-year window in the previous century, in the 20th century, and tries to stack up the death caused by the Soviet Union, 
uh, Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek in China, Pol Pot in Cambodia's killing fields, the Japanese before and during World War II, and Hitler also in the same time period. And he estimates it is really hard to find out how many deaths those regimes are, are, are responsible for. But depending upon where you look, those God-hating regimes are responsible for somewhere between 165 and 360 million people in just 70 years. You want to do the math on that? You'll come up with this. That is, averages out to the death of 12,000 people a day for 70 solid years. Tell me again how religion is the problem. But that line of thinking persists. It, George Carlin's line is quoted as if it is gospel truth. You know what's wrong? You know what leads to all this oppression? It's religion. It's God and the people who follow. Like, it doesn't matter that like, it's objectively false. It's believed to be true. Just accepted as true. So how are we supposed to live as a, as a Christian in a society that more and more sees faithfulness to the Bible as the problem? Before I say anything about that, which is how we're going to finish this morning, first I want to tell you that's what we do every Sunday Whatever we do to know God better, to follow Him more accurately, to be more like His Son, that, this is what we do every single Sunday. But from this text, from this story of Elijah and Obadiah, we can learn some things. Because we can model ourselves after, I think, Obadiah and also Elijah. So four ways, four things to remember if you'd like to live as a Christian in a society that thinks God and those who follow him are the problem. First, remember that serving those who are far from God is not compromise. Serving those who are far from God is not compromising your faith, your morals, or, or anything of, the, of that ilk. How do I see that? Obadiah was a faithful employee of one of the most godless couples that's ever been written about anywhere. And Obadiah was not just involved. He served Ahab. He was faithful to Ahab and Jezebel. Now, when he came to a crossroads where he either had to obey Ahab and Jezebel or he had to obey his God, he went with obeying his God. But he hung right in there serving people who were far from God and thought God was the problem. Listen, we don't need fewer Obadiahs. We need more. And the Bible is filled with stories like this of people who worked for, faithfully, cared for, were after the success of godless regimes and organizations and people. 
Obadiah, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, Esther, over and over and over and over. And when it's time to have to disobey, it is not with an angry victim's mentality, with grace. How do we live as Christians in a society that sees faithfulness to the Bible as a problem? First, remember, serving and loving those who are far from God is not compromise. It's actually the gospel. Second, we should remember that anger and insulation are bad strategies. (laughs) That's sort of the opposite of how, to, how we're supposed to live as Christians in a society that sees God and those who love God as the problem. Anger and insulation are bad strategies. Listen, to me, this is the biggest, probably, I'll say one of the greatest weaknesses of the evangelical church in America today. We are so angry and we are so focused on how we are being mistreated And how our rights are being taken away even though we are the freest, wealthiest people who have ever walked the face of the earth. We're so shocked at how when people who are far from God act like they are, you know, far from God. We're so shocked when we are mistreated and told we are the problem, that we forget the one we are following told us, you're going to be mistreated. And he didn't follow it up by saying, make sure you are super furious when it happens. Staying in insulated, angry groups in person or online, where we carry on the constant contest of who can throw out the wittiest, angriest, most biting comment that the rest of the world will hate, but my friends will high-five me for. Might be fun. But our mission field looks at that and says, See, why would anybody want to be like that? I told you they're the problem. Let me ask you a question, and I would like a response. Is following Jesus the problem? Of course not. But you know what? When we follow Jesus, it shouldn't look like a problem, it should be disarming. Maybe we should be delivering a few more unsolicited casseroles and a few fewer angry, witty, biting comments. Maybe maybe we should be doing more volunteer yard work for someone who's far from God instead of shouting at them online. Then maybe they would say, man, that's not what I thought Christianity was like. Instead of, see, it's exactly what I've been telling everybody Christianity is like.
Are we called to convince them how wrong they are or show them the difference following Jesus makes in the life of a sinner? Third, I regret the way I worded this, but we'll go with it. It's okay to be Obadiah and not Elijah. If I had it to do over again, I'd word this this way. We are called to be obedient, not impressive. We're called to be obedient, not impressive. And obedience is often quiet and lonely and difficult. You know, there are people like Elijah who are called to to do what we're going to see next week, to to climb the mountain, Mount Carmel, and have a a showdown with power and call the fire down from heaven and, and execute some false prophets. And I praise God that there are some people that God calls for a time such as this to do things like that. But most of us ain't Elijah. We're not called to figure out how we can be impressive We're called to show someone who's far from God what it looks like to follow Jesus. Maybe we should carry more groceries than we scream into the void and rage against the machine. Again, am I aware that society is falling off of the cliff into the abyss? Of course. But stopping the, the, stopping the trajectory is not our job. It is to be at the edge trying to offer an arm to somebody that, so that one person may not go over. And shouting at, how, at them how wicked they are has never been terribly effective. And finally, and we got to get to communion here. But I would encourage us to live as a Christian in a society that sees faithfulness to the Bible as the problem. Is to be charitable without affirmation with those who are struggling where obedience is difficult. I've learned a ton studying the Elijah story this time. But the thing I've been most surprised by because I, Elijah is this powerful, confrontational man but several times now, we've seen him be with someone who's gonna, who wants to be disobedient. The widow, God told the widow, hey, this Elijah's come and give him part of your food. She doesn't want to do it. Today, Obadiah, go in and tell the king I'm back. He doesn't want to do it. And Elijah never cancels him. You call yourself a real Christian? No, a real Christian, whatever. Act like that or do those sorts of things. Oh, I just like, man, I know it's hard. I'm, I'm going to be here with you. Here's what God promises. He said to the widow, here's what God promises you. He worked harder to enable obedience than he did to shout at the disobedience. And man, if I had more time, I'd tell you my feelings on the Alistair Begg story. But man, we cannot wait as a church culture, to find somebody doing something disobedient so that we can, like, burn them at the stake. So we can sh- make sure everyone knows I would never. 
when usually we have no idea what we would do if we were in that person's shoes. When obedience is really, really hard. There are ways to say, man, I disagree with what you're doing, what you're saying, the advice you gave. That's not what I would do. But listen, I know that's got to be a gut-wrenchingly difficult situation. All right, we just landed the plane on the sermon. So you can, you can put your Bibles and your notes and everything away and get ready for communion. And I want, to hear, I, I want you to know this. Everything we just did was an introduction to this table right here. The story, the passage, those points on the screen. Because here's what we're going to do. We're going to remember and celebrate how God treated us in spite of the blackness of our sin, right? And we're going to take the symbols of the body he allowed to be crucified on that cross. We're going to take those symbols and put them inside of us, understanding this is my whole standing before God, right? That's what we're going to do. Well, listen, if there was ever anyone who deserved, who had earned the right to treat others the way I've been encouraging us not to treat others. It was God. If there was ever anyone who was, who was qualified to say, look at those wicked, filthy Bereans in southwest Nebraska. I mean, look at them. Ah! If there was ever anyone who deserved to stay where he was at and high-five the angels, giving zingers about how wicked we are, what I'm, what I'm telling you here is not just some soapbox that I am standing on. It is the gospel. It's what he did for us. And we are forgetting it's what we are supposed to do for the people we find disgusting, offensive. All that being said, we're going to celebrate and remember God was willing to be better at this than we are. <laughs> he is not asking us to do anything he didn't do himself first. He came to die that you might live. As the guys come forward, let's pray for the bread. Our Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for refusing to stay separate from us though we were so wicked in comparison to your holiness. Thank you for stepping into this mess. Thank you for being mistreated worse than we can be mistreated, abandoned, neglected, all of those things. You felt that, you took that. That you might make us your kids, your people, your friends. As the bread comes around, help us to remember what you did in Christ's name. Amen.
For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The reason we are not going to fall into the judgment we deserve is because he did. It is not because we've improved. It's not because we are better than. It is not because we would never. It's because he already did. And that should have been aimed at me. To teach us that the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave a piece of it to each of his friends that were in that room with him. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He asked that we remember him while we do this. Father, as the cup comes around and as we sing of your cross, we, uh, we cling to the blood that this cup symbolizes through which we have the forgiveness of our sin and through which we are whiter than snow in your eyes. Amen.